Storymakers. I am Elizabeth Stark Powers. And I'm Angie Powers. And we are delighted to be here with Rona Behrens, uh, the wonderful life coach and and uh, many-storied <laughs> person who we're going to get to talk with today. Um, let me just start with a, a little bit of a bio, and we'll, we'll dig into this bio because it's... Um, it's wonderful and intriguing, um, and even having known you for a time and, and worked with you and played with you, I, I didn't really know everything. <laughs> and now I do know everything about you, so yeah. that's good. <laughs> um, so, so Rona is, well, so her letters are PhD, CPCC, and ACC, and we'll talk about <laughs> what those things mean, um, but, um, but she has an academic background with degrees from McGill University and UCLA in communications and media studies, and um, worked um, at UC Irvine, um, earned tenure there, chaired uh, her department, served as director of the professional film and TV internship program, and taught a range of courses like performance in film and TV. TV. Uh, so that will be wonderful to talk about. And then um, moved on from academia into VP posts in strategic marketing um, and, and various other uh, roles in the business world and as a business consultant. And then brought all of that to becoming a certified um, co-active coach and, um, and, and, and I think uh, relationship systems intelligence coach and we'll talk we'll get into some of the different kinds of um coaching that rona does and when where those you know cert, 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 the training and the certificates and all of that um and on top of all of that rona is also a creative writer who um who wrote co-wrote an episode of a short-lived abc drama we'll have to get into that a little bit and um and has a spec script that's placed in screenplay competitions and has written a as yet unpublished biographical memoir entitled Piggyback with a Madman. So um, that's just a little hint <laughs> about how great this conversation is going to be. Welcome, Rona. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Awesome. I great to have you here. <laughs> so we just start each week with uh, a check-in from, from all of us about what we are working on. Um, Angie, do you want to start? Um, I am trying to finish up my revision for Rock and Roll Ahola and um, screenplay. Screenplay. Uh, you know, Meryl Streep has this new kind of fellowship, I guess, sort of for women writers over 40. So I feel like that's a much smaller pool than the one I'm usually up against. So it behooves me to try and get something in for that. Great. That's great. Um, and um, Rona, do you want to say what you're working on this week? I'm working on giving myself permission to work on a poem that I haven't worked on for a few weeks. So, Ooh, yeah. How wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I am um, revising an essay that I wrote about... Um, marriage and home that that kind of draws on my memoir um, to try to get a piece of that out into the world sooner than I'll be finished with the whole book. So that's what I've been doing. Um, all right, good. So and welcome to our guests who have showed up in the uh, guest room. So hello to you guys. Good. And, and uh, yeah, feel free to throw your questions at us um, if you are in our studio audience. Um, 
All right. So um, and so let's just let's just jump in and Rona. Maybe we can um, go a little bit chronologically and talk about some of your your background in um, in film and in and in writing, um, which which I'm sure is will is also inspirational to you as someone who who, who I know coaches a lot of creatives. Um, do you want to talk about how you kind of got got into into launched in that direction? <laughs> Um, so I'll try and give the short version. I, the the short the shortest version is I actually when I was younger wanted to be an actress, mm. and I made a deal with my parents before college that they said that if please, if you can please go to college, and not major in theater arts, <laughs> then if at the end of college you still want to be an actress, we will support you to go to New York and to pursue that. And I grew up in Toronto, so this was in Toronto at the time. And I thought that was a good deal. And so I got to McGill University where I was doing my undergrad, which is located in Montreal. And there were three majors in the English department, one being theater arts, which was a no-no because of the deal I'd made, one being English literature, which I thought, yeah, but I don't know. Didn't quite sound incredibly dynamic to me. And the third being film and communications. And I, I thought, oh, that sounds great. And it's in the same department as theater arts, so I can still be close to theater arts. And I ended up falling in love with film and media studies and got an undergrad in that, came out of college and realized that while I loved performing and loved acting, that I really wanted to be an actress because I didn't like me and wanted to be someone else. And I thought maybe that wasn't the healthiest motivation for a, a career in acting. And I really decided that um, film and media studies was really interesting to me and I also liked the promise of teaching which is sort of the place to get some of those performance yayas out but in a I think uh, a way that was more productive for me and also a way for me to feel like I, I I'd always written from childhood I'd written poetry and short stories from a very young age and sort of felt like this was a way for me to write but also pursue things in an academic way that was also of interest to me. And so that's how I ended up becoming a professor of film and media studies and um, worked a lot with students who ended up at UC Irvine because they really wanted to be screenwriters and filmmakers and they couldn't get into UCLA's program. And UC Irvine was sort of next nearby and close, but not a production program. And so I was very committed to helping these young artists be able to pursue their art. And so I was quite instrumental in, in creating a professional internship program and in helping support them in their work. And I would say in that way, I was a, I began my coaching career then because professionally what has always really inspired me is helping to inspire others mm -hmm. and especially creatively. That's been uh, a, a thread uh, throughout my career. And the writing sort of ended up being, has ended up being this kind of parallel track, uh, which is that sort of co-writing an episode of a short-lived uh, ABC TV series, which was called High Incident. Okay. And uh, it was a cop show. Nice. And I... 
very <laughs> yes procedural cautious so a lot of procedural meeting you know a lot of rules in terms of how it was structured and what you had to look through not quite the CSI kind of procedural stuff so not quite as rigid as that but still certain uh, very clear-cut rules to follow and I just happened to be it was sort of like a great kind of nepotistic opportunity um, my partner at the time was hired to executive produce the show and she thought I would be great at writing TV and really wanted to encourage that and we had another friend who was moving from editorial was an editor for many years and wanted to also write and we ended up being thrown together to write an episode and it was a very safe way to learn how to do that because we knew that you know my now ex would take it over and rewrite the entire thing if need be <laughs> and it went and and she I watched her do that with many other people's work yeah. so I was quite prepared for that to happen but it was an incredible experience for me because she rewrote I think two lines um, in the script so it was a wonderful writing experience as well one of the things that, that we talk about, Angie in particular talks about, is um, creating with constraint. You know, having those those structural or other kinds of constraints. Um, did you did you like having that amount of kind of I don't know formula or structure in there when you wrote it? And then did you find it allowed you to do uh, creative things within that, or or did you find it too constraining? It's actually a great question. So for me personally, because I had not written television or, or any done any screenwriting until that time it was a great structure and safety net for me personally because it was so incredibly structured and yet I mean the dialogue wasn't structured like there was there was free reign for other kinds of creative expression and also in terms of the storyline and, and plot points that Wendy with whom I, I co-wrote it and I were able to bring to that allowed quite a bit of flexibility I will say once I then so after that I started writing screenplays a little bit more and then found the conventional structure quite constraining and you know it should be this long and it shouldn't be longer and you don't want to go on tangents again with sort of like the more conventional Hollywood structure yeah. and and I had a, a lot of conflict and I think I haven't been writing my screenplays in a while but there's a script that I is inside of me that needs to be written that wants mm -hmm. to be written and when I think about that I feel this sort of like internal conflict around the should voice of well right. it should conform to this structure and it should go in this direction and then that sort of creative desire that has a much more freer spirit and free reign that wants to go in in other directions now as a viewer or can I actually speak to that a little bit because I think um one of the things that just just in terms of like constraint and especially with screenwriting, like, you know, there are a lot of things on page three, you should reference the theme and on page, you know, 25, there should be the inciting incidents. And, you know, um, there are a lot of those shoulds. And at the same time, like I come to feel like that's sort of a set of training wheels to help people learn how to build tension that we have this internal expectation because so many of us watch so many Hollywood films, but that underlying everything is this desire to keep your audience emotionally engaged. And if people don't know how to do that any other way, it is a great set of, um, milestones in a story so that you have things happening in a regular enough basis. And I think that's why act two often stumbles is because there aren't as many right. of those milestones that we see. Right. So yeah, great points. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, great. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the question is like what we need some constraint and, and maybe not, you know, so how, and, and actually what I was going to ask is, is, is as a professor and as a, an audience member or, you know, of, of film and story, do you, do you have the same relationship to, to constraint? Do you, you know what I mean? Do, do you, do you appreciate the, the, the kind of plot and structure or, or do you find yourself frustrated with it? you know, from the, from the viewing side. I mean, I, I would ask that to both of you actually. <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, I think at different points in my life, I would answer that question differently. So when I was a professor and I did that, I taught for close to a decade. Um, I was madly in love with, you know, experimental, certain kinds of experimental narratives and shorter formats and international cinemas that really don't, conform like I was crazy about this at one point sort of certain segment of Argentinian cinema and and you know different kinds of storytelling structures mm-hmm. uh, that are very different than the conventional Hollywood structure so I think at that point in time I my exposure to a much wider range of narrative tools and techniques and and modes was was much more significant and i think my passion for them it's interesting since i left academia my viewing you know i don't know if my viewing tastes but what i have had exposure to and been able to see has actually narrowed down to much more conventional hollywood and so i would say i you know i think i've always had a great love for conventional hollywood cinema and and narrative structure and style and I am yearning, you know, yearning for and get delighted when I get to see movies, less so TV shows, because I think the movies I watch are, are, you know, would allow for a greater range of, of storytelling tools. So, I, I, you know, I think it depends. I think it depends. I think it also so depends how did, on how did, how did Frozen impact your life? <laughs> yeah. well, that's more about the, the, you know, soundtrack and hearing certain songs over it. Over and over again, yes. but I actually love the story. Of the, you know, I mean, so I love the story. So yeah, we have our first question that's come in, um, and I know that we're actually going to be talking about the saboteur stuff as well, right? So yes, that's I, I have a good segue, but go ahead. <laughs> um, so the first question that has come in is, "What are you working on now? Are you working on more? You're working on more than one thing, and how do you juggle?" <laughs> Good question. Answer, not sure. So uh, so I'll say, you know, the for better or worse, and I'll say I have sort of struggle with in, in, inner critics around this. I think my, my creative work is much more hobby for me at this point than career and professional focus. So my professional focus is actually helping, uh, you know, one part of my professional focus is helping creatives, helping writers. And I've also worked with actors and photographers and people who are, who are artists or, or are at least a chunk of themselves, considered a chunk of themselves to be artists, uh, navigate the kind of blocks that get in the way of producing your art. And one of those blocks is having a day job and, and being a writer, for example, or aspiring screenwriter. And so I'll answer that question, I think, less about myself and more in terms of how I work with clients around that. And I think the answer, there's no simple answer. Um, it's, it's much more about sort of who we are individually and what I think the inner critical voices around 
what we're, we give ourselves permission to or don't give ourselves permission to around carving time. And then also how we navigate priorities. So how much time needs to be, has to be devoted to, you know, sort of the, the has to in terms of to pay the bills, where do I need to put my energy and, and where can I negotiate some of that energy in order to give time to my creative endeavors. So it's not really a question, but I think it's about sort of looking at one's own, what's, what, what's on one's own plate and then try to figure out how much of this is a survival, I need this in order to survive, and how much is this, I should, I feel like I should be doing this, uh, and so therefore, because I should be doing this, I'm not devoting time to these other really important creative projects that I want to get to. Yeah, this might be a good time to introduce right. the idea of the saboteur and where, where, what those should voices, yeah. all, that, all that theory about the should voices. Yeah, so the coaching that I was trained in that Elizabeth said in the, the intro is called coactive coaching. And one of the core concepts of coactive coaching is something called a saboteur. When I was getting my training, I just really thought of it as, oh, this is an inner critic. It's a very specific kind of inner critic, and personally I believe we all have more than one saboteurs. Basically it's an aspect or aspects of the self primarily devoted to the status quo. So really comfortable with things staying as they are. Some of us also have saboteurs that are devoted to constant change. So in my experience, both in my own life and in working with clients, most of the saboteurs I've encountered have been the first kind, the sort of devotion to the status quo, the way things are, keeping things safe, the devil I know, right, what I'm familiar with. And it's it's not just any new experience. It's, one, a new experience that we supposedly want for ourselves. So it's a change in our lives that we believe will be change starting a new book, for example, or developing a new story idea, for example. And simultaneous with that, it's, it's a, an effort, a new effort, a change where we encounter primarily internal resistance. So the saboteur is this inner aspect of the self that shows up, I, I like to think of we, have, we can have auditory saboteurs, or, and or behavioral saboteur. Some of us have both. I personally have both. The auditory saboteur would show up as a voice or voices in our heads that are the should voices or shouldn't voices. And one of my favorite sayings that I only learned about probably a couple of years ago is don't should on yourself. Um, I would also add don't should on others, but that's like if you want to extend this to other people in your lives as well. Um, so one of the ways to get a sense of when we're coming from that energy which is kind of fear-based energy which is what our saboteurs often operate from is if you hear yourself telling yourself well i should or i shouldn't do that it's a good indication that this is a part of the self that is afraid that's speaking another key thing about our saboteurs is i believe that in 95 percent 98 percent of cases our saboteurs are really they're not only devoted usually to the status quo they're devoted to the status quo because they're really intent on protecting us that they're really afraid that if we try this new thing if we go in this new direction if we introduce this new storyline or theme or whatever it is we're we're grappling with that something bad will happen um, in that way, the saboteur is a kind of primitive or I like to think of almost primal aspect of the self. And if we were to, you know, be talking therapeutically or psychologically, these are aspects of the self that came into being when we were very young at a time in our lives when we did or we thought we did 
we did need or we thought we needed some kind of protection. And where they don't function that well as we get older is that they start to hold us back from things we really want in our lives. So auditory saboteurs, shoulds and shouldn'ts, often commands, often uh, prohibition, so like something horrible will happen if we pursue something. They speak in extremes. You always, you never, those kinds of things. And often they're quite nasty. So that's another way. You know, that was stupid. What a stupid thing to say. What a stupid thing to write. You know, how could you do that? That kind of voice. Behavioral ones, procrastination is a primary behavioral one. Uh, Mild anxiety, uh, distraction. So, you know, in extreme cases, anxiety and distraction might might need some kind of medical intervention, perhaps. But in in more sort of like ways that we notice, like I really want to start that new screenplay today, and the day, you know, that morning, oh yeah, except you know what, I got to pay this bill over here, and you know, I've got to finish this over here. Like that is also a way in which our saboteurs intervene and pull us away from something that might be a little scary maybe also a little exciting, but for the saboteur is something that they are worried that if we pursue it, something bad will happen, we'll fail, we'll make a mistake, we'll get publicly shamed, those kinds of things. So I know this is setting off <coughs> bells for, for my students because these come up all the time when we check in, you know, all kinds of procrastination, delay, um, fear, the voice, the mean voice of the critic, all of that. And so what do we do when we, when we you know, what do we do so that we can do the things we want to do, do the writing we want to do or whatever? I so wish I had that sort of like simple solution, right? Like, here's what you do. Okay. So this is complicated, right? These are parts of ourselves that are, they're autopilot. Parts of ourselves are automatic. They are, they've been with us for years and years and years. So here's the, the bad news about our saboteurs in terms of at least how I was trained to understand the saboteur. These are aspects of the self that they don't really go away, right? They're, they're with us. The really good news is we can get into a very, very different, much more empowered relationship with them. And where I think we get into trouble is where we let these voices or behaviors be the boss of us. And so much of my work with clients, creatives and otherwise, I mean, it doesn't like pretty much almost all of the clients with whom I work, regardless of the topic that they bring to coaching, our focus for a chunk of time is on bet on getting to know our saboteurs and getting to a more productive relationship with them where they're working for us. They're part of our team, our inner in, inner team of players, as opposed to that they are the boss of us and deciding on how we act or don't act. So the first thing I say to clients is start to get to know your saboteurs. And one of the ways to start to get to know them is don't, first of all, don't assume that there's only one because often our saboteurs can be the rock and the hard place. Mm-hmm. You should finish that screenplay. You should finish that draft of your novel, whatever it is you're working on. And then you have another voice that's saying, you shouldn't finish it. It's not ready. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't joke. You shouldn't show it to anyone. You shouldn't do anything with it. To me, those are two different saboteurs. We often just like it's autopilot. Okay, these are the voices in my head. I'm not really paying attention to them. I just know I'm paralyzed. And I can't do anything. So the first step is to actually start to get to know that. If it's voices, start to pay attention to what they say, when they say it, what triggers them. Pay attention to what kind of personality they have. We tend to collapse 
who we are, our best self, with these voices. And my belief is there's a best self, a competent adult self, and that our saboteurs are like little kids who are rallying to take care of us but they aren't necessarily the most competent part of us. They're a very reactive part of us. So the first thing is to start to pay attention to them. One of the things I often ask creatives to do is to start to do character profiles for them. Mm-hmm. Imagine, you know, you say, oh, there's a voice that comes up when I'm just about to start, you know, my writing session every day, if I do a daily one. What does it say? What does it sound like? What tone of voice? If if it were a character, what would it look like? What would it dress like? Who would it friends be? Try and write a character profile for these characters inside of you. So you can get to know them. And the more you can do that, the more you can actually differentiate them from, from a different aspect of you that's perhaps more competent. So that would be the first step. And we can certainly talk about more. But mm, yeah. I think that's that is pretty amazing um, work to do and to and to start separating them from just the truth of what you know what we should be doing right well and I'll say like it's not like they're not like so I would just say I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as truth or untruth I think they are part of our truth they're part of who we are just because our fear is part of who we are and can be a really productive sometimes part of who we are especially for writers, you know, that sort of energy around fear and conflict and those kinds of things can be incredibly productive. Where it's important to differentiate is that that we often think of that's the only voice or that's the only truth, right? So that's one truth. That particular fear is one truth. What, what's another truth that perhaps is not as terrified that perhaps is more the part of me that really wants to tell this story or, or do this. So it's about looking at the different character. Like I, I think one of the ways to think a good way to think about it is the different characters within us mm-hmm. and some of them being more competent and more adult and calmer and maybe more courageous mm-hmm. and some of them being afraid and reactive, but also kind of, perhaps fun in some ways or loud and brash in a way that maybe we might not be. And there's something to look at there too. So, you know, so I'll just say that I, I just in, in working with Rona just did this wonderful exercise about, um, you know, a c- 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 conversing with the me 20 years from now. Right. And you really guided me into, um, and I give you permission to talk about this, <laughs> but you guided me into this whole vision and, and on top of how powerful it was to have, to hear what my 20 year old wiser, older, wiser self had to say. Um, it was also powerful to be guided into that vision and to, to remember that I could create kind of co-create this whole reality, you know, just like I can when I dream that that I've brought that back to my writing as well, right? That ability to just trust my intuition and dig in and write from that place too. So, you know, that's, I mean, I'm wondering if you can talk about that work of like, and, and what it, how you sort of guide people to physically experientially take on their own intuition. Wow. Uh, so I, one, I want to say, I'm so glad that that journey was inspiring for you. And it sounds like in multiple ways, not just that conversation with yourself 20 years from now, right? All of it, all of it. So that's wonderful. So uh, a great question and complicated question. So I I had to close my eyes almost to like think think about it. So I, I tend to, it's funny, I do that kind of visualization work early in the process of working with clients. And I also will do it 
not the first time I meet with a client because there needs to be at least a little bit of trust um, mm. for a client to just close their eye if we're in you know physical proximity to close their eyes in my presence you know and that's a vulnerable place so this is a, a place of vulnerability I think so I will say that sometimes that visualization there are a small number of clients with him it doesn't work in terms of allowing themselves to go to that place for those clients it doesn't work usually it gives really good information about these saboteurs and sort of how we get in our own way and how we hold ourselves back from trusting ourselves or another our intuition and allowing things to flow what I think that kind of visualization work does and I will often in individual coaching and one-on-one coaching whether I'm working with creatives or not but especially with creatives I will tap into that visualizing whether it's invoking that future self or doing other kinds of visualizations really regularly because I think for someone who is creative and what they're pursuing are creative endeavors that a key to quieting the saboteur voices is connecting with that intuitive voice and allowing that intuitive voice to have a life and a voice and a you know reality and a truth that is as relevant as fear and logic and all those other voices that I think are much more culturally supported so I think what you're what you just described in terms of that one journey is is a very key place to try and f- find ways to tap into I mean for clients who work with me it's it's sort of an easier way to do it, it, it because they can rely on me to help them tap into it I will say I, I was just talking to a client uh, coaching a client yesterday who is a who has written novels screenplays and is now moving into the world of poetry in a huge way and she's also a painter so very very much a creative right in in multiple ways and she has learned how to on her own after doing this with me a few times how to specifically that future self kind of talking to yourself 20 years from now who is the the wise the wise version of us the version of us who is not struggling with our saboteurs in the same way the one who can look back on the past which is our present and say oh yes that was really difficult but here's here here's how you can tap into the parts of you to travel into the future she now has those conversations on her own mm-hmm. and she actually calendars those Mm. chats with that aspect of herself and she can close her eyes and remember what that part of her looks like and get into conversation with that part of her Mm. I've worked with writers who you know I think non-dominant hand uh, work can be a really great way to get there so you don't need to work with a coach and go to get into a visualization one way to do it is to have a conversation with yourself use your dominant hand to ask questions and your non-dominant hand to try and provide answers and that can sometimes be a way to trick ourselves into connecting with that intuitive part of ourselves so there are other ways to get there I I like visualization I get to do that with clients Mm -hmm. and take them on a journey so yeah, I, I love that. You could you could uh, you could make a little tape of that, you know, <laughs> and then yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned early on, you know, that you you'd wanted to be an actress, and and that you kind of eventually realized it was it was a way of escaping or not not liking yourself and wanting to be something else, and that that wasn't the healthiest motivation for becoming an actress. And and I and I wonder if if in your work with clients you've you've stumbled upon or or intuited some of the healthier motivations for being creative. <laughs> 
I've got a story to tell. <laughs> I mean, uh, that is, uh, I've got a story to tell and I, I feel, no, no, no. I mean, just like that notion of I've had so many clients come from that place, regardless of the medium, I think, in which they work. So that this sense of there's something that needs to be expressed. There's something I, I, I want to, yeah, I've got a story to tell. And I think that impulse, you know, I don't want to be me is a very, that's like, I just the physical energy is like, oh, I don't want to be me. How do, how do I get, you know, escape is a very different kind of energy than I've got a story to tell or I've got, or I, I want to share something, right? Sort of like the implied audience for that. I, I think that's been the dominant one across media. Well, I would also argue that someone who's saying I have something to share versus I'm trying inherently values something about themselves and, and I don't want to be me is inherently disvaluing yourself. Correct. So, course, um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I, but I can hear all the saboteurs. I mean, it's interesting because when you said I've got a story to tell, I first thought you were saying like, oh, I've got, like you were I've saying. I've got a story like, to tell like, you about this. Yeah. Yes. I thought, and I was like, great. Like the energy was so exciting. I couldn't wait to hear the story. And then it was like, oh, you mean like I've got a story to tell. And, um, and then I could hear all the saboteurs coming up, right? I mean, in mine and the, and the people I've worked with, and I'm sure the people you've worked with, right? Like, who are you to tell the story? Or why is your story important or more important than someone else's? Or how, is this even a good story? Or Yeah, so, and that's, I guess, where you then start the work of, of unearthing those saboteurs and... So let's go to the second step of working with your saboteur, right? The first one is identifying the saboteurs. The second one is trying to figure out what they're, what they're trying to protect you from. So that saboteur that's saying, well, maybe it's not a good story, or I've heard that story before, right? And given, I don't know, you guys probably, you two know, probably know that I, how many narratives, like there's about like six narratives, right? Was like, like they're, they're, yes. right? How many are there? I don't know. I've heard, I've heard, there's a number of theories. Like there's only 17 plots in the world. And, right. there's only... and, and in truth, like they're probably, I mean, in some ways there probably are a limited number of basic thematic, you know, tales to tell, right? That's why we have folk tales that seem to repeat certain things. So, to, you know, so unrequited love, you know, the hero's journey, whatever. So there, there are certain, there, there are limited number of stories and your way of telling the story will be completely unique because even though you have maybe you have a saboteur saying there's nothing unique about you the truth is you are unique and there is a part of you that knows that which is that part that feels inspired and compelled to to tell that story so so trying to figure out where that voice is in relation to the naysaying voices and the fearful voice voices is for me and my work with clients, a crucial aspect of tapping into that inspiration and intuition, because it is a way to um, tap into that sort of the positive energy that sort of like, I do have the story to tell and a way to um, not get rid of the negative quote, negative or fearful voices, but to, in a certain way, put them in their place. So who, who are your saboteurs? Get to know them and get to know them. And don't be surprised if more pop up over time because they're such naturalized parts of us that we might just not recognize them initially. 
just that that's me. I've always said you should, you know, you shouldn't do something or you should do something. So allow yourself to really get to know those aspects of the self and see that as an ongoing process. Next thing, take one of those saboteurs and one of those saboteurs messages and ask, and you can do it in a dialogue. You can write it out in dialogue form. Ask that saboteur what danger, what perceived danger or downside do you anticipate happening if I were to do what you don't want me to do or not do what you really want me to do? So what's the danger? What's the risk? What's the downside? And I will encourage you to try and ask for more than one. It's easy for us to stop at one answer. And in my experience thus far, I believe that our saboteurs usually are trying to protect us from more than one thing. So I would really encourage you to come up with at least a list of two protections. Then take each protection separately and start to ask yourself, well, to what degree do I want or need this protection? And it's okay if you want some protection. It's not about only pursuing things if you have zero protection. I'm great. I can just pursue this. The difference is that our saboteurs usually try to protect us 100%. So I might have a a screenplay that I would like to submit to a contest. And I've got a saboteur saying you shouldn't submit it to this. You shouldn't submit it to contests. All right. Maybe I want to. There are 10 contests that I've learned about. I want to submit it. You shouldn't submit it to contests. Well, if I ask that saboteur, the answers tend to be things like you won't place in the top three. So why bother? You'll you'll fail, according to that saboteur. Or someone will read it and think it's horrible. And that'll be just embarrassing. Or I might have another saboteur saying, well, what if you win? Like, then what? You're not really, if this is your only screenplay, you don't have anything else to show, so you shouldn't do it for that. Okay. So if I were to take that, like, so right now my saboteurs are, are protecting me 100% because I haven't submitted anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not getting submitted. So I've got 100% protection. But if I were to look at, let's say, what what if someone reads it and they hate it, I'm going to think, well, you know what? I actually don't need protection from that because I won't know that because I won't place. So I maybe will have a voice in my head saying, oh, they must have hated it, but I won't know that person. I won't be publicly shamed by that person. I can maybe deal with that. But I won't know that I can deal with that issue unless I actually get to know what my saboteurs are trying to protect me from. So that is, I think, a little bit further. It's not necessarily connecting me more to my intuitive voice or my creative voice, but it's actually connecting me more to what the reasoning is behind the fear and the fearful voices and the voices that hold me back so that I can actually negotiate that. And maybe I want 40% protection. So maybe 40% protection is that I, um, you know, if I want 40% protection from someone hating my script and me knowing that they hate it, so maybe I won't submit to a small screen writing contest where there's a greater like, or where I won't submit to a screenwriting contest where they provide feedback on every script, you know, because maybe I don't want that horrible, you know, so I just try and find ways that will give me whatever amount of protection I need, but not the hundred percent that my saboteur is holding me back from. Mm. That's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I, Ange, or how are we doing? We're doing pretty well. Um, I also want to say that we've got uh, uh, some positive comments coming in. Um, people are saying, I'm stealing that. I think that was back when you were talking about um, 
the shoulds and don't should on yourself and don't should on other people. And I suppose that's the same as don't let other people should on you. Uh, and, uh, one writer said that's ho-hum, meaning that's something that she's actually, it's a similar to an idea she's working with in parenting, um, book. Yeah. Great. One that is so true. Um, and you know, as you were talking about the saboteur and the partial protection um, you know, it also makes me think about like dog training. When you have a dog that's freaked out and scared, you actually give it something to do. Um, and that there are times and places where those are things you do want, you know, so we have a very barky dog who barks at everybody who comes in, which is annoying. But sometimes when you're home alone late at night, it's kind of nice to have a barky dog who is, you know, letting people know that there's a barky dog here. <laughs> so, um, Way if you don't like noise, <laughs> yeah. So, if you don't like small dogs that yip, this is not the place for you. <laughs> so, um, it is time for our steal this segment where we talk about um, if, if amateur poets borrow and professional poets steal, what are the things that we've come across? Or a, what is a thing we've come across this week that we want to steal and make our own? Um, I can start. Uh, I um, I forgot to bring in um, how we what it's called how to be both, but um, but I was reading how to be both yesterday, and there was a wonderful passage of subtext where she's talking about one thing, and then and and it, but but really it's resonating to her deeper preoccupations, you know. So I think she, I think she's talking about art, and she's it's really about you know her relationship and her feelings and her you know the underlying themes of the story, and we were watching. Now, what was that movie? It's the early, the first Puffy Chair, Puffy Chair, the first Duplass Brothers movie. And there's this wonderful scene where one brother is sort of faux marrying the other brother, and he's making up the vows. And not getting married to him. He's being the person he, yes, who is. He's officiating, right? He's not even marrying his brother. Uh, <clears throat> that's next. Uh, no, <laughs> he's officiating a, a wedding scene, and he and his girlfriend is standing next to him as he's saying to this new couple, you know, don't, you know, when things get really bad, you know. I promise to, right? These are the vows. He's making them promise to do all these things that just clearly reflect his relation, his terrible relationship with this couple. I will not push you to be someone you aren't. Yeah. And I will always, you know, be happy with, you know, the job you choose. And <laughs> and it's just, it was so brilliant. And one of the things I said to Angie right after, I said, subtext is not always that subtle. You know, it can be so pleasurable that we know. And, and even the person like almost knows too, but, but, you know, certainly the audience just knows right away. Like they're not really talking about that thing. They're talking about this other thing. And I just love that. So, and then I came across it in how to be both by Ali Smith. Um, so that's what I want to, I want to steal this week. <laughs> Very nice. Um, well, for myself, I think that, um, you know, in my range of reading, I keep coming up with these instances where people are collaborating in one way or another. And I think um, that's actually something that's very on my mind and how to generate a community of people with whom to work. Because even though I'm interested in doing, you know, a lot of individual kinds of writing, um, having that 
community is really, really important. And I know that the book writing world is one place, but there is definitely something about um, the interpersonal interactions. And I was actually listening to a biography of Einstein and just talking about how every great scientist that you know had somebody they were talking to. Um, And, you know, even in the Manhattan Project, they talk about sort of uh, Richard Feynman became this... um, you know, he's an amazing physicist, but he ended up having these conversations with the lead physicist because everyone else was so willing to sort of just say, okay. And Feynman would really ask questions. And so he, and he was a very junior physicist on the project. And I just think having that sounding board with someone who doesn't even necessarily have to even be that in the same place as you are, but connecting with people with people to expand your own vision so you're not in a little tiny, you know, warren of imagination. Like a life coach, for example. Exactly. <laughs> Rona, anything that you want to steal this week? I do. I had a client when we're talking about the saboteur who said that she's now trying very hard whenever she hears a saboteur voice or, or imagines who the the saboteur is, is doing procrastination, for example, that she imagines that saboteur is a Muppet Mm -hmm. and that it's letting her sort of take it more lightly and sort of from more humor. And I think I want to steal, I want to start imagining my saboteurs as Muppets. I love that. Yeah. It, it really it resonates with that toddler image you have too, right? It's like yeah. that's so great. Yeah, I love that. That's wonderful. Well, Rona, how do people get more of you? How do they find you online, and how do how can they get in touch with you and or work with you or or read more that you have to say? So my website for them to check out is www.fortedreams.com. So that's F-O-R-T-E dreams.com. And I actually offer a complimentary strategy session. So an initial just chat session with anyone via phone or Skype. Um, And uh, because it's coming through you guys, it will be a full session, which is 50 to 60 minutes uh, at no cost. So that's I'm happy to do that with anyone. Um, I would like to be in touch. Incredibly valuable. Just so, I mean, really, I just so, so transforming, you know, to have literally life changing, literally life changing. Hence the name life coach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for coming to talk with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. 